Welcome to this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. Today, we're bringing back Dr. Amy Gelfand. She's a pediatric neurologist and headache specialist. We're going to talk about headaches and children. Um, before I get into interviewing her about headaches, I also wanted to brag about her for a little bit uh, <laughs> because I'm so proud of you. Um, Amy went to, okay, so not only is she a scholar, she went to Dartmouth undergrad, Harvard Medical School, San Francisco for her pediatric residency training. Correct me if I'm saying anything wrong. San Francisco for her neurology training. And then she did a headache fellowship, which there are very few true pediatric headache specialists in the country. Um, but she's also a phenomenal mother of three. Her kids are phenomenal. Um, and she has a lot of chickens and a lot of, she's an animal lover. <laughs> she, yep. she grows things. She grows plants. Um, can you just for a second tell me a little bit about how your animals are doing? Just so. <laughs> You are amazing. This is great. You are. And you um, compost. Yes. yes. We have compost. some wonderful chickens. Um, we also have. Are you allowed to say how many? We uh, we've got that. about 12. And um, we have two little mini uh, Nigerian dwarf goats wow. who are about the size of a, a mid-sized dog and, and just as friendly. And they're adorable. And so we're we're having a really good time with our little backyard farm. How do you do it all? You're amazing. They, they're they my therapy. Those are my therapy goats. <laughs> Keep me calm. I'm, I'm, I love that. What a healthy therapy outlet. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, so since I have you and you're a headache specialist, um, I wanted to ask you some general questions about headaches in children. Um, so first of all, how, how common are headaches in kids? Like, so if a, if a, if a parent tells me their child has a head, that the child has a headache, is that a common situation? Should, should parents worry about this? Well, unfortunately, headaches are very common in kids and teens. Um, there are a number of different reasons that kids might be having headaches. Some of the most common would be tension type headache, migraine, or headaches after a head injury. For example, if they have a sports concussion and then they're developing headaches after that. If they're coming in... Now tell me, medic- also, sorry, what is yeah. a tension headache? Will you, will you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so that tends to be sort of band-like pressure, pressure quality pain that tends to be bilateral. It's not usually too severe and it doesn't have what we call um, associated features like light sensitivity and sound sensitivity and nausea to any appreciable degree. Um so like right, really like right here, a, I tell parents. Yeah, right? Like right, yeah, exactly. A band like here, yeah. Yes, okay. yep, you got it. And um, certainly tension type headaches happen in kids, but interestingly, I don't think that they cause a lot of um, disability because most often if somebody's coming in to talk to the pediatrician or, or to talk to a neurologist about headaches that they're having, it's usually going to be migraine or some other um, headache disorder like post-traumatic headaches. But but for kids with migraine, um, migraine is actually remarkably common in kids by fourth grade. So if you take about 10 year olds by fourth grade, there's on average a kid with migraine in every classroom because the prevalence is approximately um, 5%. And if you compare that to other neurologic illnesses like epilepsy, it's much more common to have migraine than to have any of these other uh, neurologic illnesses. So it's a, it's a big problem for kids and teens. Wow. So 5%. So one in 20 kids has suffers from migraine headaches by age 10. And then as they go through teenage years, the prevalence actually increases from there. So it's a really common problem. Now, what are the signs a parent can look for in their child to know if it's a migraine headache? 
So some of migraine is best thought of as, um, as a dysregulated or amplified sensory processing disorder. And it's fundamentally genetic, but it's so much more than a headache. It's, uh, amplified perception of light, light seem brighter than they really are, or sound seem louder than they really are. Uh, there can be an illusory perception of movement, which we call vertigo, where it feels like the body is moving or swaying or things are spinning and they're not. It can also just be sensitivity to movement in general, where, you know, just walking makes the head pound. Um, the quality of the pain tends to be that pounding or throbbing type of pain. And you can observe, especially for younger kids who might have difficulty saying that lights are bothering them or sounds are bothering them. You can also observe their behavior. What are they doing when they have a headache? Are they going to their, you know, do they want to go lay down on the couch or lay down in their bed and have things generally be quiet and, and darker? Um, no one's going to miss vomiting. That's, that's a very obvious um, symptom, but you know, are they complaining that their stomach's upset? Those types of things would be um, suggestive of migraine in a child. And they're very genetic, correct? And, and tend to be. Exactly. Yes. If we, if we get the chance to take a really good family history, there's almost always somebody else who has migraine in the family. The caveat I would say is that it doesn't have to look the same way necessarily. So the child might be getting uh, migraine attacks three days a week, but the, the parent with the migraine history has them once a year and they think, you know, oh, it's not the same thing, but it is, it is the same disease. It's just expressing itself more frequently in the child at their, at the phase of life that they're in right now, compared to what it's looking like in the adult at the phase of life they're at right now. Okay. And tell me, um, you've told me this before, so I'm cheating. I know the answer, but does it have a, a, a gender preference right. in terms so, of genetics and who gets migraines? So before puberty, boys and girls are equally likely to be affected. But as they start going through puberty, then uh, we start to see girls being more commonly affected. And as they get into later adolescence, it starts to look like adults where women are about three times as likely to have migraine uh, compared to men. So sometimes if I'm taking a family history and I'm having a little bit of trouble figuring out where it is, I'll, I'll sort of look for um, on dad's side, uh, you know, what what's the paternal grandmother's history? Because maybe dad has those genes, but he ha- his brain and his body haven't expressed them very much because there's not that overlay of some of the, the female sex hormones. Um, and so he may not experience headaches very frequently, but if we dig back a little bit into um, more history on his side of the family, that can often be helpful. That's so interesting. Okay. So it's more, it tends more towards the female side. And even if the father doesn't have it, maybe find out if the father's mother has it. Yes, exactly. Because I think these genes can come from either side, but they tend to express themselves more in women, which is just unlucky there. And um, so if we We, we're better in other ways, right? Exactly. (laughs) Okay. And then is there a chance a kid will outgrow migraines? So let's say, you know, a parent knows their 10 year old has migraines. What are the odds that they'll outgrow it? Or is this something they're going to have to deal with for most of their life? So because it's fundamentally genetic, you you have the same genes, but how often those genes express themselves can change quite a bit over the lifespan. So if migraine is a frequent issue in childhood or adolescence, it does not mean that it's going to be like that for their whole lives. 
what I often see is that as they get through a later part of adolescence and they're not having so much change all the time, um, they're starting to get a more regular schedule. They're not going through so much growth and development. Then things can start to level off and they, they might be a person who has a migraine attack once every two years or once a decade or whatever. There's a broad range there. Uh, but, but it doesn't having frequent headaches in childhood doesn't mean that it's going to be like that in adulthood. Okay. That's good. That's good to know. Yeah. Sometimes Um, people are really worried about that. I'll also tell parents to think about the triggers to, to really think about what could be precipitating the headaches to come, um, as a way to manage them for, for a lifetime. Um, what do you think about that? This is like a whole talk topic on its own, but it's, it's a really interesting area. And I think it's really complicated for a couple of reasons. One is, um, there's also a phase of, of migraine attacks called the premonitory phase, okay. which is before there's headache, but some of the changes are already happening in the brain, in this area called the hypothalamus that um, regu- is involved in migraine and is involved in mood and appetite and um, sleep and wake. And so people can have symptoms uh, such as fatigue, light sensitivity, nausea, food cravings. And those symptoms then are followed by the the headache phase. And sometimes it's hard to know, was there a trigger? Did bright lights trigger the migraine attack? Or was somebody already in the premonitory phase perceived normal lights as being bright and then the headache just followed? The other example that sometimes comes up, I'm a big chocolate lover, so I'm very interested in this, in this question of, of um, chocolate triggering migraine. And there's a study where... Uh, people were given chocolate or the control substance, and they were equally likely to have a headache or follow people with migraine. Oh, that's good to know. And so it doesn't seem like chocolate is is triggering uh, migraine. And what I think might be going on is that if the brain has entered this premonitory phase and there's a food craving, somebody might go eat chocolate and then notice that the headache follows afterwards. But it's not that the chocolate caused the migraine attack. It's that the migraine attack was already starting in some ways, maybe caused the chocolate eating and then, and then the headache phase followed. So it's a really complex area, but taking a step back, um, the, the brain of people with migraine really likes things to be as regular and consistent as possible. So regular sleep schedules, regular exercise schedules, all those sort of things. And one of the issues that's, that makes it sometimes challenging as a, as a kid or a teen is your schedule is always changing. School schedule is always changing homework, all of that. Um, and, uh, hormonal cycles for, for adolescent girls. One of the things that that can be activating or, or triggering for, uh, migraine is menstrual cycles. And, and those are often irregular when they first start. And so there's a lot that's going on for, uh, this age group where things, it's hard to keep things regular from that standpoint. Mm, Okay. So teenage girls, as they become, as they get older and things become more regular, do you find that the symptoms get better with headaches? I think that's part of why time is generally speaking on their side. As the body uh, gets more mature and has more regular cycles and just more consistency, I think that's part of why things do tend to settle down. I also like what you said about chocolate, because when I learned about migraines, I heard one of the um, teachings was to avoid migraines, you have to tell adults to avoid their favorite things, chocolate, alcohol, and cheese. And so sad. <laughs> so, so sad. Okay. So that's not necessarily true. No, I mean, or it's, caffeine it's too. Yeah. yeah. There, there've been these studies where people have, um, 
kept track of, of everything they eat and their habits and so on for, for 90 days. And it's really a complicated thing to figure out what's a trigger for, right. for even individual. Sometimes things that we think are triggers aren't and something we might not have even noticed might be correlated. And it could be a really complex area. So what about preventing headaches? Like, so, so if a child tends towards getting headaches, what can parents do to prevent them happening? I know we talked about getting more sleep, having a more regular schedule, anything else like supplements or other? Right. right. So um, one thing, regular sleep we were talking about, and if, if their school district isn't following uh, American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines and starting the AAP says that middle schools and high schools should start no earlier than 8:30 a.m. because we know that adolescents can't fall asleep as early as younger children and so they and they still need at least 8 hours of sleep so That's to help them we need to start our schools a little bit later so if their schools aren't starting um at that time they could advocate with their school board to try to change that but there are things that we can uh, give to help decrease migraine frequency, and, and some of them are supplements. So uh, riboflavin, which is vitamin B2, can help with decreasing migraine frequency. Um, magnesium may be helpful. Coenzyme Q10 may be helpful. And melatonin at night can also help with decreasing migraine frequency. All right. So trying supplements, regular sleep. Um, and then at what point do you recommend um, taking a stronger medication, like seeing a doctor like yourself where they need a prescription medication for migraines? Right. So I think if, I think it's always a good idea to consult with, with the child's primary care provider and, and make sure, first of all, that they think the diagnosis is migraine, that there's nothing concerning for something else going on. Some of the signs that would be concerning for another kind of cause of headache that, that, uh, might need to be acted upon would be uh, double vision or with headache attacks, getting uh, weak on one side or numb on one side. Those things might be indicative of migraine aura, but we, we want to make sure that there's nothing else happening. So okay. first getting to a clear diagnosis, making sure that we're dealing with migraine. Okay. And then I think in terms of decreasing frequency, trying those, those types of um, lifestyle interventions, like regular sleep to the extent that the family can, I don't think people should send themselves crazy because sometimes it's just, there's so many, there's different members of the family and lots of people have needs. And I don't think people need to uh, really just completely change their lives. But Thinking about that, thinking about uh, some of the supplements, and it does take about six to eight weeks of using a migraine preventive to know if it's going to help decrease migraine frequency in a, a child or a teen. Okay. If that's not helpful and you've given a, a good um, round of, of one preventive strategy, I think it's reasonable at that point to, to refer somebody to see a neurologist and see what else we can do to help with decreasing migraine frequency. Because there's mm -hmm. certainly a lot of treatment options out there and um, I think that migraine is one of the, it's a very treatable neurologic, uh, cause of missed school, impaired performance at school, missed activities. And so to leave that untreated seems like such a shame if, if there's something we can do, which in the vast majority of cases, there's definitely something we can do to help. So I think it's worth, uh, bringing somebody in if they're having that kind of a problem. And I know migraines account for a, a huge number of missed days of school and missed days yes. of work. So that's good. Um, yeah. Okay, so what about like the typical tension headaches that I see, not like kind of delving away from migraines, kids that come in that um, come home from school and they have headaches or they wake up in the morning with headaches. Um, is it okay for parents to give these kids Tylenol, ibuprofen? Do you have a preference? Anything on? Yeah, those are both really reasonable. 
Yep, those are both very reasonable treatments. I think of ibuprofen as maybe having a little bit stronger evidence for being helpful for headaches in kids, and it lasts a little bit longer in the body. Okay. Um, you know, six hours instead of four hours with Tylenol. But on an individual basis, some people find Tylenol more helpful. Some people find um, Advil, uh, ibuprofen, acetaminophen. So either one, I think, is a really reasonable thing to try. So sort of the parent can pick either one and see what works best yeah. for the child. Okay. Absolutely. Now, what about how many days in a row should a parent do that for? So let's say their child has a headache and they've been giving them Tylenol for seven days in a row. What would you say about that? Because I've heard you can get build a tolerance to these medications after. Yeah. Days. So I think that the concern that comes up there is this thing that's called, it's not a perfect name. It's called medication overuse headache, which I think is an unfortunate name because it sounds like it's it's sort of landing some blame on, on the patient where all they're experiencing is a lot of headache and they're trying to get better. But, um, it's this phenomenon where if you're taking certain, um, acute treatments for a headache frequently over a period of time, it can start to paradoxically drive up the headache frequency. This does not happen to everybody, but it's hard. We don't have a great marker for who's going to be sensitive to it and who's not. So generally speaking, we, we usually tend to, to, to counsel trying not to uh, exceed certain limits, but, but the limits are usually around how many days per month somebody's using these medications okay. and over time. So I don't worry too much about, uh, as long as they're not exceeding any safety dosing frequency sort of things, but from a medication overuse headache standpoint, I don't worry too much if they're doing it, um, you know, daily for, for say seven days, usually with that class of medicine, somebody might say, uh, try to limit them to less than 15 days per month on average. Okay. If you have a rocky week here and you need to use it more, I think that's an okay thing as long as on average you're staying uh, under 15 days per month. Okay. Oh, that's good to know because I, um, that's really good to know. So, like a female that is having bad headaches with their menstrual yeah. cycle, it's okay if they take uh, ibuprofen throughout their menstrual cycle. That's okay. Definitely. And that's a really good example. There, there are even some studies, um, for menstrual related migraine where people, women and adolescent girls would take, um, a triptan, a migraine specific acute medicine twice a day for five days around their menstrual cycle to help with those headaches. And, and that's an effective strategy too. And, and certainly you could use them with NSAIDs like ibuprofen or naproxen. And I think that that's a good idea in, that, in those situations. And is there anything else, this may sound like an obvious question, but anything else a parent should think about when their kid has a headache, like have them drink water, have them rest, any other general advice to help with headaches? I, I think that kids will often find those things for themselves. Like they'll, they'll go and lay themselves down. <laughs> um, but it, it's certainly a very safe thing to, um, you know, encourage them to, to drink some water. And, and often if they're, if they're taking pills or something like that, they're going to be taking water anyway. Um, you know, the, I would say um, an important thing if, if a child says they're having headache is is believing them because headaches, they're invisible. We can't see it. And uh, I think it's important to, to believe uh, children because sometimes adults in their lives won't necessarily believe them. And I think that's a really sad thing for, for these kids, but, you know, believing them and then you can observe what what kind of uh, behavior they're having, if they're going to lay down, turn the lights off, those sort of things. 
And then if it seems to be a recurrent problem that that's um, affecting their ability to go to school or enjoy their activities or, or just causing them impairment in their quality of life, then making advocating for them and um, getting them into medical attention to get a diagnosis, to get good treatment. I think all of those things are um, important for parents. I think that's an excellent point. Um, I say that all the time that a, a headache here and there is okay, but at the point where it gets in the way of their day-to-day enjoyment activities, going to school, that's when I think about, you know, intervening a little more, sending, sending them to a pediatric neurologist like yourself. So, um, (laughs) um, and what about warning signs? Are there any headaches that a parent should immediately see a doctor about? Is there a time of day that we worry about or, or, uh, um, a frequency that we worry about? Like what are, what are signs that parents should think about when to, go to the doctor. Yeah. So exactly. Everybody's worst nightmare, of course, is, is this coming from a brain tumor? So I think the the things that would worry me, um, waking up in the middle, I think Google Google for that a lot, a lot of people, right. Um, waking up in the middle of the night with headache. So when we're lying flat, if, if something is growing and causing pressure in the brain, when we're lying flat is when, um, pressure may be increased. So headaches that are waking children up out of sleep, particularly if they're waking up and, and vomiting, um, that would be more concerning. And if they are, um, having any changes with their headaches in their ability to talk or understand their, their mentation, their, one side of their body isn't moving properly or they're not feeling properly on one side of their body. They're complaining of double vision, seeing two of things overlapping or their um, eyes look like they aren't aligned correctly. That's the kind of thing where uh, we want to see that child right away. Um, most of the time, fortunately, there's nothing like that going on. And the most common cause is going to be something like tension type headache, migraine, those types of uh, headache disorders. But any of those brain brain tumors for children are very rare, very rare. Yes. Yes. So I think the main things that are to remember are waking up out of sleep with headache and vomiting, um, weakness or numbness on one side of the body, double vision, eyes not looking aligned. Okay. So if a child wakes up at 2 a.m., complains of headache and starts to vomit, that's a reason to go to the emergency room. Yep. I would say. Okay. Exactly. Oh, one last thought I have. What about screen time? Do you have any advice for parents where their kids get headaches from screens like taking screen breaks? Do you have general advice in that area? Right. So um, I think there's two issues. One is screen times around bedtime, which is uh, a complex problem because the blue light coming off of the devices can block our brain's melatonin production and make it harder to fall asleep. And that's particularly an issue that adolescents are sensitive to. And this is so hard. I I imagine this comes up in your practice when, because a lot of them are doing their homework on their devices because that's where they're supposed to, and they have to do their homework until bedtime. It's really hard. (laughs) But, but I think that if it's at all possible to avoid devices in the hour before bedtime, I think that is very helpful for helping um, with sleep. So I'm going to say that again. So one hour before bedtime, take a break no devices. Okay. This is a, but I know that's asking a lot because they might have to do their homework still. Okay. Um, but ideally one hour before bedtime, no devices, or at least put that blue light filter on so that they're not getting the blue wavelength light. Um, more generally devices during the day and, and so on. I, I approach it the same way that I approach, um, really any other activity, you know, people, the the brains like to have things be very regular. And just like I would say that too much, 
soccer. You know, if you play soccer for six hours straight, that's going to put a strain on your body and, and your brain. And I wouldn't recommend doing that. I would say take some breaks, drink some water. Same thing with screens. You don't want to be doing that for hours and hours straight. Take some breaks, do something else. Right. Um, and so I think of it as sort of the, the same in that way that, uh, that too much of anything is, is probably not ideal and that we need to um, take some breaks and, and break things up a bit. Thankfully, our kids are back in school, right? Um, anything, anything else that we should talk about, about headaches that I, that I haven't covered any, any last thoughts? There's so much (laughs) out there. (laughs) Are you really Um, like, do you feel like, you know, is it, is it a very common, I, I think it would be, but is it a very common issue that parents reach out to you for? Yes. I think that, if there's anybody who's following who wants to go into neurology and wants to be a pediatric headache specialist, we need you because <laughs> there are so many kids and so many teens and families who are really um, struggling with with these uh, headache disorders and their impact on their lives. And um, I think it's it's an area where we need more research. We need more attention. There's a lot of stigma around headaches mm. uh, where people are either not believed or assumed to be um making it up or somehow not being strong in, in some way. And I think that's a really big problem that we need to work around as a society and thinking about as a, as a society, what's our responsibility for helping to decrease migraines and, and other uh, headache disorders in kids? Because some things are beyond the control of the kid or the family, right. you know, school start times are, are a factor for this. And so I think as a society, we could do a lot better for these kids. I think it's such a good point you make that you can't see the headache. Like you can't visibly see it. Like you mm-hmm. could see a rash or, or something physically on the body. And so I do have parents that say they're not sure if they believe their kid. They, they doubt their child. Um, and it's interesting because you're, you're right. Why, why not give the child the benefit of the doubt that, and, and believe them because headaches are so debilitating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no lab test where we can say, okay, your migraine is at a right. eight on this lab result, or or it's not like a broken arm where the cast is right. obvious and we can see the break on the on the X-ray. It's something where it really is um, based. The diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis based on the reporting of the symptoms from the person who's experiencing them, and so they really are the the owner of that information. And, and I think it's important that we Absolutely. believe them. Um, Amy, this has been so much fun. I, I adore you. I thank you so much oh. for being here. Um, I hope I get to see you soon. I In hope person. I get to see you soon too. And it is so fun to be with you. And thank you for doing this. Thank you for your interest in headache disorders and kids. And I hope to get to do it again sometime soon. And if people want to see you, can they schedule televisits with you or, or yes. make an appointment? Yes. Really? Okay. I'm at uh, UCSF in San Francisco, and we are doing telemedicine new patient visits. Amazing. All right. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye.